The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. We are in the middle of talking about shame. And last week when we were, not last week, two weeks ago, at our last (laughs) meeting, when we were together, we talked about shame as being a tool to enforce and reinforce cultural values. So it functions in that way, the same way that honor does. But we have to be careful not to imagine that shame is sort of the opposite of honor. These are different tools that work in different ways to accomplish different ends. But the overarching goal of these structures, just like uh, j- just like all um moral structures in in various societies is to enforce and reinforce the the values that hold the culture together as a whole. So last time we spent some time contrasting what shame cultures look like versus what guilt cultures look like. And we introduced a third culture type that doesn't show up in the book that we're reading, but is, uh, is important to discuss nonetheless. And that is a fear culture. So what I want us to do is to begin by doing a quick overview of the way that those three cultures work. And hopefully, what what I like about this video is that it also directs our attention to the ways that the gospel speaks specifically and intentionally to and through each of those various types of cultures. So this one is from Global Frontier Mission. You probably noticed that the video, um, I think, oversimplifies the concept of shame, um, especially in contrast to what we've been reading. But what I appreciate about what they had to say was the ways that the gospel speaks specifically to the individual uh, people groups, that, uh, that, and it does so within the context of their own culture. So for for the for, for the, the the people in in western individualist societies the gospel still speaks to us in the midst of western individualist societies the same thing with with the collectivist cultures from around the world the same thing with with fear power cultures that that the gospel is still moving in those places and what we need to learn how to do is how to proclaim the gospel how to share the truth of Jesus's death his resurrection uh, and his, his coming again in glory, the, the, the truth of the church, how to share that in each of those different kinds of cultures. It's about doing it in a way that's um, non-anxious, in a way that's winsome, but also in a way that is clever and attentive to the specific needs and the specific uh, wishes and fears and languages that are being spoken by the people that we're sharing that with. And like I said during our last meeting, it's important for us in our context because while we may not be uh, you know, involved in, in overseas evangelism, 
The truth is that the community that we live in, even here in, in Nicholasville and in Jessamine County and in Wilmore, uh, the community is increasingly diverse. Uh, in, in the last 10 years, the, the, the diversity has nearly doubled in the, the community where we live, and that's not going to change anytime <laughs> soon. Uh, and so we need to learn how to speak the gospel to our neighbors in ways that meet them where they are uh, and understanding the, the different ways that cultures see themselves and portray themselves is a crucial component to being able to share the gospel in a way that, that they can hear without having to, uh, to, to put more barriers in front of them where they have to acclimatize themselves to a, to a Western philosophy, Western ide- ideologies and mores before they can hear and approach the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. The problem that we have when we're talking about shame, and the the authors spend a a chunk of the chapter discussing this, is that for us, the word shame has to work really, really hard because we don't have language that deals specifically with the, the, the various ways that shame works in other cultures where that is a fundamental cultural uh, cultural or, or, uh, or interpersonal value. So for us, we have this one word, shame, and we have a few ways of sort of adjusting that. We can talk about a shame or shameful or shameless. And for us, for some strange reason, but the word shameful, full of shame, and the word shameless, lacking shame, are essentially identical in, in English. So we don't, we, we literally, by the way that we use language, describe this word that we don't know how to describe. Like, well, it means having a lot of that and none of it at all. That's shame. Like, I, but that doesn't make any sense. Welcome to English in the Western, in, in the Western context. We don't know what to do with the word. It has to do all of this extra work because for us, generally, we have this, this, this for us, when we say the word shame, typically what we mean is a general negative feeling uh, associated with judgment from outside. Um, it could be that we are fear, we would talk about like the pangs of conscience, but even then we're not so much judging ourselves as we're worried that we're going to be discovered in whatever the thing is that we've done. So the shame that we feel, the, the shame that we experience always has to do with judgment on the outside, which of course makes perfect sense because we live in, in a culture where it, it's all about judgment and it's all about justice. That's how we understand uh, the way that we relate to each other is, is through these legal metaphors. <clears throat> Uh, all of our life is is constantly navigating a, a you know a complicated series of contractual relationships. When we go from from our job into our home and into uh, you know public spaces, all of those things are just overlapping contracts that we're trying to navigate through, uh, and that's just the world that we live in. So what we're used to is judgment being something that exists outside of us, and it happens to us personally, and it happens to us individually. But in the New Testament, it's a collective thing. So shame has to do with, uh, we can think about it as something that happens afterward. Okay, so an act could be shameful. And this is especially true in the New Testament context after something has already happened. So after the fact, an act becomes shameful, or it's knowing that something is shameful. So for us, we say this person is shamed, which means that they did something wrong, and now shame has been applied to them. So they have to be embarrassed 
uh, and probably ostracized because of something that's happened because now everybody knows. Or we can say this person uh, had enough shame and so they didn't do something. They knew something would be shameful and so they chose not to do it. And that's the only way in our language that we have to, to, to function. But in the New Testament, what matters is the goal, okay? Because shame in, in the New Testament and, and more broadly in, in collective cultures, collectivist cultures, what matters is the goal because shame helps us to identify and then it also helps us to avoid behaviors that are contrary to the health of the community. So not in a clinical sense, but in a, in a general communal sense, they're antisocial behaviors. These are uh, the, these are the, the shame itself is designed to help us to identify those behaviors and to help us to avoid those behaviors so that we don't mess with the, the fabric of the community. Does that make sense? For those that have lived in collectivist cultures, I'm always interested in your guys' input. Um, so anything that I say where you, you can think of specific examples or you want to clarify something that I've said, not coming from that kind of a background... Uh, you guys, please jump in and, uh, and, and inform and correct, okay? So <clears throat> what I appreciate in the book is that the book helps us to identify that there are proper and improper ways that shame is used, both in our context but also in collectivist cultures. Because the goal, if, if, if the goal of shame is to bring somebody back into right relationship through right actions, then that's a positive way of shame being used, either because the shame helped them to know ahead of time what not to do, or because the, the, the shame that the person felt or experienced caused them, to, uh, caused them to seek ways of restoring the relationships that were broken, uh, looking for ways back into the communities. And then the, the authors described to us that that's a proper way of, of shame doing what it's supposed to do. The trouble is that in many places, the shame doesn't do that. The shame simply ostracizes and the person is rejected and put on the outside and there's not a way for them to restore that broken relationship. And when that happens, then shame isn't being used in a, in a positive way. It's just being destructive to the fabric of the community and it will continue to be destructive to the fabric of the community. So I wrote three words up on the board that you should not know. You might, but you probably don't, and that's perfectly acceptable. Uh, these, these are three Greek words. These are the three Greek words that show up in the New Testament when we're talking about shame. Now, <clears throat> the authors are going to spend most of their time in this chapter and the next chapter uh, using examples from the New Testament. There are a handful of examples from the Old Testament that are used, but I, I would say by a handful I mean like two or three. Uh, most of the examples they're going to give come from uh, the, the New Testament because we collectively in, 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 uh, in scholarship understand more about shame and honor and the way that those work in cultures in a Mediterranean context than we do in the ancient world because we just don't have the same kind of access to resources like personal letters and, and those kinds of things. So what we have to do is we have to sort of read backwards and read between the lines to, you know, to sort of pick up all of those things that aren't being said to, you know, call back to our book before. And so we can talk a little bit about the way that shame works in the Old Testament, but for concrete examples and images, 
uh, the, the authors are going to draw on the New Testament. And so to help us with that, I wrote down the three words that are going to show up whenever the New Testament is talking about shame. All right. So the first one that's up there is the word entrope. This is different from the word entropy. Okay. I was going to ask if English <coughs> got entropy right. from that. Uh, no, it's, it, okay. it, it's not. So <coughs> this word refers to you specifically. All right. This is the word that Paul uses twice in 1 Corinthians when he's writing the letter to the church in Corinth. And he says um, to, to them on two separate occasions, I say this to shame you or I say this to your shame. It's difficult, again, because, because of the way that shame exists in our, um, in our grammar, it's difficult for us to sort of nail down exactly what Paul is saying, which is why you get those very different translations, depending on the, the background and the, the information that the translators are operating on. So it could mean, it can mean, I say this to shame you. But again, the, the way that he's using this is not that. What, what he is saying in a way that would make sense to us is more, I'm speaking this to your conscience. I say this to your shame. So this is the shame that belongs to you. It's a sense of propriety, a sense of right action. And what he's suggesting is you're not measuring up to this. And so I'm saying this, I'm, I'm, I'm directing your attention to your shame. I'm lovingly calling you I'm out. I'm lovingly calling you out. Exactly. So it only shows up a couple of times in the New Testament. And it's, it, it's when, when Paul is directing people's behavior as a group back toward collective behavior. So it, for, for example, this occurs in, um, in chapter 15 when Paul is explaining this about the Lord's Supper. And he's saying to them, when everybody shows up and just gobbles when when everybody who didn't work a job during the day shows up and eats all of the food and then when the poor day laborers show up there's nothing left you are shaming this and so i'm saying this to shame you you embarrass god's people when they come to the table because you couldn't be bothered to just eat a meal in your own home you had to come here and 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 make a make a show of your opulence and so he says to them, I'm saying this to shame you. I'm saying this to, to call your attention to your behavior. Pay attention to the people who are around you. Look at the community. Look at the faces of the people coming in through the door to find that there's no food left because they've been working all day. And, you know, they don't have people that they own who do all of their job for them. Um, he, and so he speaks in this really kind of in-your-face way, like, like, like Robbie just said. He said, I'm, I'm saying this because I love you and you need to fix your life. Right? That's, that, that's sort of the, the connotation that he has. The next one is going to be a little bit trickier for us. Because again, these words don't have a one-to-one -one corollary in English. So, this, this word, iskinos, it means ashamed. Alright? So it means that we have been shamed by something. We, we have, we, we've been put into a position of being shamed. Iskinos. So, for instance, this happens in Luke 14 when Jesus is telling the parable uh, of, of, well, he's not telling the parable. He's using the example of when you, when, when you go to a party, don't go up and sit at the, at, at the top of the table. Take the lower seat because you take the, you take the upper table, then the, the master's going to come along and there's going to be a more important person than you there. And so he's going to say, friend, get up and go back down to the place where you belong. And actually, you're probably not going to even be able to sit there. You have to go down to the end of the table. To find somewhere to sit, and you will be iskinos, you'll be ashamed. But there's another place that this shows up. 
and I'm not going to tell you where it is yet, but it's interesting. But what I want us to hear from this one, whereas uh, the, the entrope refers to the group as a whole, the Iskinos refers more specifically to you as an individual being shamed, receiving the shame or the scorn because of your actions or because of, there could be external reasons for, for somebody to be shamed in that way, things that happen to us that put us into that category of shamed. Um, as I was looking at this word in particular, I was thinking about what, um, what David had mentioned a few weeks ago, talking about the, the way that the caste system functions in, uh, in, in India in particular, that this idea that like some people carry the shame because of who they are. And it doesn't have anything to do with what they've done, but that it's, it, it's them as people. They have a certain kind of shame. Is, am I describing that correctly? Yeah. Okay. So this Iskinos, it, it has to do with, with, with shame that we have. It's shame that we possess in a, in a negative sense. All right, the last one is one that only shows up once. And because it only shows up once, we have to look outside of Scripture to find other ways that this word is being used in Greek. So let me show you guys what this, what, what this comes from. So I'm going to uh, read to you guys from... From 1 Timothy. Let's see. All right, so this is what uh, this is what Paul writes. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now. This word, shame, is in one of those two verses that I just read. Who knows what it is? The proper part. Uh -huh. Yeah, we translate this word modesty in, uh, in almost all of the English translations. We say, let the women adorn themselves with modesty. The word that he uses is idos, let them adorn themselves with shame. Now, <clears throat> in your experience of Christianity. Does this notion of women dressing themselves modestly have anything to do with the kinds of clothing that they wear or does it always have to do with temptation for the other people who are in the room? Lust. Mm -hmm. huh? It's always about lust. Yeah, that's what my... Experience. You've heard it both? Both. Just like you both? Should, but it's a... You shouldn't wear certain clothes because of. Oh, because of, right. So yeah. you're wearing certain clothes, but so not, to tempt but not tempting yeah. other people, right? Yeah. So it's still connected to, connected to <clears> lust, <throat> right? Yes. Yeah. Which is, very what you were going to say? I just say, very interesting interpretation from the book. I mean, uh -huh. That was great. It really was. Yeah. I, it, it was fascinating because Paul literally says to us right here in the same verse, likewise, women should dress themselves with shame not braiding their hair with gold and pearls or wearing fancy clothes. He literally says in this word what he means by they need to dress not in a way that's going to embarrass people. It's right. not they're going to embarrass people because they've, they've, <clears throat> they've become too attractive. It's that in the culture that Paul is writing to, men 
displayed their wealth by adorning their family members, particularly their daughters and their wives and their, and their servants. It was a way for the men in the congregation to display their wealth because it was considered really sort of lowbrow and trashy for men to do anything other than they might wear a gold ring and that was it. You could, you could wear the toga that was designed for your station and you could maybe wear a gold ring have if you signet. could afford Right, you could have a signet if you were the paterfamilias. And that was it. That was the only option that you have. And so the way that men would show that they were wealthy is by adorning everybody around them. So Paul is not directing this specifically at the women in the church. He's specifically directing this at the households in the church. He's saying, don't behave this way together. Men, stop having arguments out in front of the church and stop, you know, talking loudly over the top of everybody and stop, stop this kind of, this, this kind of, uh, you know, competition with, it, with each other. Stop showing off every time you go to church on, on a Sunday. But for us in our context, that more is about, is about sexual temptation. And it is so central to the way that we as Western individualists understand what uh, what holiness looks like, that we read this passage, and even though Paul specifically describes to us what he means when he uses this word modesty, we have imported a completely different meaning onto it, and we just sort of ignore the rest of it. What, what also, <clears throat> I mean, the whole idea of some of our traditions of sim simplicity, mm -hmm. like the Quakers and the right. Shakers, and mm -hmm. the, the, even that can be shaming each other about how simple you are. It can be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. yeah. So he's not even talking about that. He's just talking about you take care of... You respect each other. You respect each other in the way that yeah. you're dressing. Stop yeah. trying to stand it's out true, in your community. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's yeah. true humility. Mm -hmm. So we go both ways in our... Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, we can always find ways to, to abuse. And again, that's why I, I really appreciated the way when they talk about shame, that they talk <laughs> about proper and improper ways... Of, of using that. An example of that that they didn't bring up in the book, but I found while I was doing some other research online was that word Abe. He has that story in there about, um, about their son. Uh, and the, the word Abe means shame. And it's a word that parents typically use for kids where they, when, when the kid is acting up, they say, Abe. And it's just, it, it's a word that just means shame. You just say shame to the child. And it's, it's a way of the child sort of inculcating this, 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 this action. And I thought, oh, well, that's really interesting, you know, because I mean, you know, maybe in, in our context, I, you know, I can remember like dad always had a look. <laughs> and you knew that if you know like if you got the side eye from dad you better quit whatever you were doing right now like the, it was sort of the nonverbal version of abe <clears throat> ours was the count was the count up the count if up. you got to three you were taken to the bathroom for a woman right mm -hmm. until the, then you had all the chances to stop right there's the there's the the tone of voice you use when you say your child's name. <laughs> the mom look. <clears throat> the how mom many look? names you include when well, you say your child's name? Say that? Yeah. It's, it's the way I say my own name <clears throat> internally when I'm trying to get myself to do something properly. Oh, yeah. Like I internally? Always, like, oh. Like when I'm trying to stop something, I'm like, I, I find myself inside saying, Andrew. <laughs> Inside we, my head, I'm like, oh, that's my parents. At work, there's a specific coworker who grew up in a more collectivist culture. Mom voice. Uh huh. <laughs> like with other coworkers, or oh, with yeah. The, uh huh. Oh yeah. <laughs> she, uses, she, she pulls it out. She uses the mom voice. The mom voice. I love now, it. Child training is so different in a shame culture too. Mm. They don't take them and beat them. Uh huh. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. No. What's the, the whole different approach? 
it's the whole justice, shaming him. right and wrong. Shaming. Yeah, right. And you don't punish him the same way at all. Right, you don't punish him like, or the guilt like, thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, with, uh, like with with my little Latino kids in Spanish, uh, if I'm really bringing up the heavy stick, I say, "How how's how is this reflecting on your family?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that they're like, "Oh, you know that's that's you know I don't talk about their future." Why I say, "How's this affecting your family?" Mm-hmm. What what you know? How does this right? Are you, are you, how does this does this look yeah? Bad. Does this give respect? Um, uh, does this give respect to your family or take away respect from your family? And that's the big. That's, mm-hmm. I don't use that very often because that's like, right. That's I, what I'm. Being, those are the big guns. Those yeah. are the big guns. I used to be a, a story um, that sort of so in the Philippines, I was in a bad section of town, and I I parked in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. So what the, what the police do is they take your license plate off and you have to go to the headquarters mm. to get to that. And it was a bad section of town. So I took my seven-year-old daughter with me and they couldn't shame me. Mm. I mean, they, w- they wouldn't want to shame me in front of my daughter. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, it's just <laughs> a whole different play of things. Right. Yeah. Wow. What they would what they would have done if they would have shamed you. If I, if, I mean, going in there as a white male into the bad section of town, they probably would. They would have treated me different. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were very respectful. And I actually, I also took a big Bible because I was a father. Mm-hmm. So you take everything you can. In <laughs> that kind of a culture, it's interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. It can be abused, obviously. Sure. Yeah. So. But some of it is about like finding ways to communicate. That's right. Uh, you know who you are and and what group you belong to. That's true. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's so I was part of. I mean, in the in India, you wouldn't carry a Bible. Right. In the Philippines, as a Roman Catholic country, they respect the, mm-hmm. and and also family. So. I thought it was interesting. I started looking at this and I said, I want to know a little bit more about how this word Abe is used in in Arab context. And very quickly, I found a side of Abe that I had not considered um, because of my own own background, because of my own privilege. There's a side of it that I hadn't considered, and that's that the word Abe is an infantilizing word. Um, and so there were a number of blogs that I ran across um, of, of women who have gotten out of abusive relationships and they say, I hate the word Abe because it's a word that's used to keep people in the role of being a child. And so when, when boys get to the age of nine or 10, no one says Abe to them anymore. They just say, there's a different word that they use. And it essentially means what we mean in English when we say boys will be boys. So boys can just do whatever they want and nobody will say that. But women, even women who are married, will still have other men, including boys of 10 or 11, tell them Abe and yeah. use that as a way to control them and use shame. And it's one of those sides that like, when I heard this word, I was like, well, that seems like you know, it, it's it, it's the big guns. Like this is a, this could be a really healthy way of, of doing that. And it wasn't until I listened to some of those stories and said, "Oh no, I can see very quickly 
how this can turn into uh, in, into misuse, how this uh, how how this tool can be abused in these other contexts. And as soon as as soon as I read those blogs, I said, "Oh no, I can see that. It makes sense. I can see how that kind of that kind of power in relationship dynamics is something that is is so tempting for us to abuse. You think about the way that that sin takes hold of our hearts in whatever the kind of cultural context that we find ourselves in, and we're like, "Oh well, I have this." This power, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna use that, uh, and and it very quickly turns into um, I mean, it's toxic, like abusive culture. Like I said in the book, it, it also depends on what values are being instilled. Mm-hmm. So it's like not only is it a, abuse of the thing, but there's what values, and it's then the in Muslim predominant areas, if they depending on how strictly they follow the tenets, mm-hmm. women are. <clears throat> Yes, and and so it's like well, of, of course the the little boys would be doing that because you're trying to instill the value that women are a subcategory of human because mm-hmm. you, you don't own your fellow Muslim men the same way you own your wife mm-hmm. or your wives again depending on how strongly they follow. Mm-hmm. So that may have something to do with why they didn't want to. Like they, there. He tells the story of he and his wife had a conversation. Mm-hmm. We're not going to use. This We're not going to use kids. this word, Abe. Yeah, and she mm-hmm. found herself in that in in that situation. Like I wish that I could use it, but we've decided not to. Yeah. And I I wondered. Yeah. Is is this the reason that they decided that because <clears throat> they didn't they they didn't they understood the value and they chose not to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like there are other ways you can you can. <clears throat> Well, for, to use our terms, discipline, mm-hmm. without using something that has been, and is still being so you know abusively used. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it goes back to informed by identity and enforced by command. What are you informed by? What are you choosing to enforce? Going going quickly back to the fear culture, like in South America, the use of el cuco or la llorona, mm-hmm. or those type of fear tactics. That's also how they control child behavior mm-hmm. like if you if you do that el cuco will catch you the boogeyman will right the you. boogeyman will get and, you and the kids believe in the boogeyman and the parents don't dissuade them uh-huh. like it's like it's like believing in santa claus and some parents keep that alive for a long time in south america el cuco is a real thing mm-hmm. or la chupacabra or that you know these like, fear yeah these fear stories and fear folk tales are a big part of mm-hmm. child rearing mm-hmm. so that's yeah. how, you, how you raise your child is with fear that's that's still prevalent in some parts of like Appalachia here too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all through the Asia. One of the abuses too is is, and the shame it seems to me is that uh, there can be a real problem there, but nobody wants to shame, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that it's sort of like a pressure cooker. Yeah, it just keeps building up and explodes yeah. at a point that. It probably happens. Well, I, I was thinking when I was in Thailand, um, oh, yeah. some of the girls were asked, they said, they said, please explain the scripture to us about how if you have a conflict with your brother, you said you're supposed to go to that brother alone and point out their yeah. conflict, and then you're supposed to bring somebody else in? Yeah. How? She says, that must be for you Westerners, and but that's not cursed. That's not the God I would know. We would never shame a person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I says, well, how do you resolve a problem? And she says, well, the right thing to do is is to heap blessings on them to keep 
to keep doing good things to them so they feel such guilt and shame about what they've done to you, mm. they'll change their way. So it was a very different, but bringing out, you know, to confront the brother, she was like, that's wrong. That's, mm-hmm. God must be wrong here. She did not. Or mm-hmm. there's a go-between. Uh-huh. Use a go-between so you don't go directly. But mm-hmm. all this indirect stuff, uh, a serious problem just builds and builds and builds. And then mm. just, yeah, so that's one of the real disadvantages to right. Well, and they they don't that maybe they do, and I I just missed it. But one of the the passages that I I wanted us to look at, we're, we don't have time to to do a deep dive on this, but this is from from Hebrews eleven. So in in the book, one of the things that they talk about in uh, kind of toward the beginning of this chapter really is is that that sin and guilt have a connection, that sin and shame have a connection, that sin and fear have a connection. That there's a that, that there is sin at work in the human heart, regardless of the cultural context that we find ourselves in. And so what's important for us as we're reading scripture is to pay attention to the ways that the Holy Spirit is using the the means in those cultures to bring people to repentance, to bring people into proper relationship, to bring people uh, uh, in, into a place of safety. Um, but it's also important for us to remember that the whole, while the Holy Spirit is using those tools, that what Robbie pointed out, that, that it's the, the, the goal that is important also. That we make sure that not only are we, is, is it important for us to recognize that shame is reinforcing values, but also it may be that the values themselves are not values of God's kingdom. And if those are not values of God's kingdom, then whatever the tools are, whether it's guilt or fear or shame, whatever the, the, the you know, whether it's power or, or honor or justice, whatever that looks like, it shouldn't be used to reinforce things that aren't in, in, in keeping with God's kingdom. So as an example of that, this, this comes from, from the, the 12th chapter of, of Hebrews. The author writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That God himself recognizes that Shame works in positive ways and in negative ways, and that the the call here, this this idea of laying aside the things that are holding us back, recognizing that Jesus Himself is laying aside the the human values that are contrary to God's kingdom, and instead restoring those things, instead of making people whole, somebody who is who is both the founder and the one who is bringing to perfection. Uh, the 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 faith of his of, of his servants and the the kingdom that's been entrusted to him by the father and so we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses who are comp- continuing this work of drawing us on and drawing us forward so the goal in, in reading this book and, and in reading these chapters is not for us to baptize particular cultural values but for us to recognize what those values are and the way that those values worked in the world of scripture so that we can see the places where God is both affirming and 
uh, contesting the values of the world and is inviting us into new ways of seeing what God is doing, new ways of hearing the gospel, new ways of sharing that promise with the people who are around us. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.